Hello, everyone. Welcome to Nick Land's eight-session seminar, Bitcoin and Philosophy. Uh, it's a packed class and lots to talk about, so I think I'm going to straightforward give it to Nick to start the seminar. And I'm in the background if you guys have any, any questions or want to talk and participate in the conversation, because I think Nick made it sort of like um, clear that he likes, not, he's not going to be doing um, a long lecture today. So at any point you want to like join in the conversation, just let me know on the side, on the side text column, and I can unmute you so we, we can all participate. Okay, Nick, thank, thank you so much for agreeing to do a seminar with us, and I'm just going to like pass it on to you. Go ahead. Okay, great. Well, w uh, welcome to everybody. Um, this is a fascinating experiment as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm greatly looking forward to it. Um, it's eight units, as Mo says, and that's connecting two blocks together. So I'm still going to try and treat that as if it does have some uh, natural division into two parts. Um, with the first four sessions uh, focus mainly on the Nakamoto Bitcoin paper um, and looking at that putting it in a uh, philosophical context and I'll just say a few words about what I think that means um, I'm obviously very interested in making that productively controversial at, at the earliest opportunity. Um, so everyone can hear, I hope, and it's all technically functional at this point. Um, so if it had been, uh, let me say, uh, whatever, a 20, a 20 lecture course or something like that, um, then the lead up would definitely have been a protracted discussion of the evolution of transcendental philosophy or critique. Um, obviously starting with Kant and then we get an increasing number of forks and options on the way we take that and part of what I'm going to, uh, might not be right to say persuade people but at least put forward as a provocation is that really there's a great arbitrariness about those forks. I mean, I'm going to use certain language taken from various parts of that tradition that I'm seeing as ultimately quite trivial decisions. You know, if someone wanted to be a fundamentalist about it and simply say, all of this stuff is in Kant, um, why are we tinkering around with this alternative terminology at various points? I'm very sympathetic to that and it's it's very much in tune with what I really want to suggest. So there's a first point which is that there's a continuous and extremely consistent tradition of transcendental philosophy and that the decisions we make about particular terminological systems within that are comparatively trivial and I think they're certainly trivial uh, when put in the context of the problem we're going to be dealing with. That's to say, if we're coming at Bitcoin and trying to make sense of it philosophically in those terms, then it really is a distraction to be too caught up in the particular nuances of the avenues people have taken to develop uh, critical thinking. 
So I think there's a whole sub-agenda that is definitely open to exploration about the plausibility of that claim. Um, I'm going to, for instance, um, casually throw in Heideggerian language at certain points to this just as a footnote to Kant, just because it's terminologically tidy. Um, if I was to put forward a, a, as a kind of a extremely kind of vulgarizing and again um, uh, controversial, I guess, pro proposition about this, it would be just to say philosophy is that mode of cognition that culminates in the insight being is not a being. And in saying that being is not a being, I'm I'm not wanting to say there's some massive transformation that's happened with Heidegger that everyone has to take extremely seriously and and inflect everything through that. On the contrary, I'm saying that's just a neat way of discussing transcendental empirical difference. There's nothing really going on in saying being is not a being for our purposes that is importantly different to saying that uh, the conditions of objectivity are not an object or any of the alternative vocabularies. You know, you could talk about it as deconstructionist, as a Deleuzean. Um, it really, on, on this level, doesn't matter as long as you're holding on to the fundamental architecture of critique. And I think by the fundamental architecture of critique, uh, as I think is useful very quickly in talking about Bitcoin, there's really two crucial things and one perhaps ultimately more interesting um, rider that I expect to develop a little bit more slowly. The two absolutely crucial elements is difference in this very specific sense, transcendental empirical difference. Um, I sent a little uh, apparently trivial little article about the, I think it was called the orthography of Bitcoin and I really again pushing the vulgarity to the absolute limit want to say when people get into a I think ultimately extremely fascinating conundrum about the word Bitcoin, the, you know, is Bitcoin the system, is Bitcoin a unit of the currency, that the difference between Bitcoin and Bitcoins, being and beings, it's the same, it's the same thing. The ontological difference, transcendental empirical difference, cuts through this discussion of Bitcoin in a way that should be deeply philosophically familiar. It's the difference between the system as something that has transcendental properties and the particularly the items, the objects, the empirical elements that are operative within that system and that obviously in the case of Bitcoin count as a uh, currency system. So that one way of, of glossing this thing is to say Bitcoin is monetary critique and that the sense in which we're using critique there is has its full historical gravity that is inherited out of the tradition of transcendental philosophy. The second, I think, uh, really crucial element, and as I say, I think we then, in a way, exhaust 
what is really necessary as architectural philosophical elements to get us started is subtraction. Um, the, the critique of metaphysics as it's initially formulated is a way of deducting a certain type of philosophical activity as being superfluous, dispensable, something that can simply be eliminated from philosophical activity. Kant's understanding of the situation is that once you see that metaphysics is getting nowhere, is doing nothing, is impossible in any productive way, it's something that is then subtracted. And this basic gesture is again something that has huge philosophical uh, and historical resonances. And I think all of the uh, philosophically significant um, critical moves, even if they seem to take a very uh, concrete socio-political sense, are still connected to this basic gesture of subtraction. Um, it's something again that we could play through uh, each of these uh, figures um, independently. We could run it through Marx, we can run it through Deleuze and Guattari. Um, the, the fundamental point is that critique provides the, the foundations for a subtraction of a transcendent element that is then shown to be dispensable and it therefore projects a way forward that no longer involves that particular commitment, that diversion or digression that it, in the socio-political sense becomes often configured as a kind of element of oppression of, of some kind of structure that, that is to be uh, subtracted in a way that can be um, surrounded with, with a rhetoric of whatever kind of revolutionary violence is, is, is deemed uh, appropriate to that particular discourse. Um, in the case of Bitcoin, again, I think that the consistency of what is happening within that tradition is extremely clear. Um, if I can just turn uh, to the abstract of the Satoshi Nakamoto paper, he says um, in the very first sentence of the abstract, uh, I'll just read the first two sentences I think is most efficient. He just says, a purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. Now, the whole double spending issue, as everyone who's looked at this stuff knows, is, is massive and I think is going to be a guideline that's going to really help us in the early stages of this. But the term that I'd like to really focus on immediately is this uh, term that Satoshi Nakamoto uses quite consistently, trusted third party. 
And I want to suggest that that term, philosophically speaking, critically speaking, is and exactly occupies the space of trans transcendent metaphysics in the way that we've been taught to recognize and target within the critical tradition. That, that what the Bitcoin paper from right from the beginning is proposing is a subtraction. And in proposing this subtraction, it places itself consistently within the crit critical tradition and it places itself within a tradition of socio-political modes of thinking that have themselves fed off that tradition. That this is, that when we're looking at what is being um, said by this, we're at one and the same time inserting it into a philosophical frame and we're understanding how in doing so we're therefore articulating it perhaps indirectly through our understanding of how that critical machinery works to a whole series of um, previously familiar socio-political discourses. Um, so just to sum up at that stage, I think that those two elements, difference and subtraction, are guidelines that allow us with great confidence to see that what is happening, I will say in this Bitcoin paper, but obviously we're partly interested in it because it isn't in any simple sense just a paper, it's something that is happening on levels that we have to explore, but certainly are not exhausted or satisfied by any straightforward sense of it being simply a, a text or a philosophical proposition. Um, but that we can see that we have inherited philosophical tools that allow us to make sense of what is happening here. And we can, we can see that even though the lineage that this has come out of has nothing to do with philosophy, he doesn't have any philosophical references, there are just eight uh, notes at the end of it, all of them are to various kinds of technical um, uh, contributions from out of cryptography and previous digital money systems. But despite that, despite the fact that it's coming completely diagonally uh, into this problem, it's nevertheless has a, a philosophical signature that is utterly recognizable um, and, and means that we have a very kind of strong framework for reading this as philosophers and being confident that this is something that um, we know what is going on here in certain ways. We have a certain uh, pre-established framework that allows us to make sense of it at the most abstract um, and conceptual level. Um, the third element that I would just throw in, I don't think it has the same kind of logical structure as the others, um, is temporality. And that's also why I'm very tempted to use Heidegger as a kind of shorthand figure, as an abbreviation, as a footnote to Kant, just because it's so clear with his work that time comes to absolutely predominate in the transcendental problematic. Um, that there's a sense that all of our 
transcendental philosophical questions, all our questions about critique become questions about time. We can do everything through time and we can't do anything without talking about time and without changing the way we're thinking about time. Um, and this too, I think, is something that is very, very evident in uh, the way Bitcoin works. Um, the uh, function of the public ledger, the blockchain, is to create a synthetic temporality. Um, it's, it's in that way an extraordinary figure, and I, uh, sorry, extraordinary uh, ambition. Um, it's something that I think people tacitly recognize. There's a very broad social understanding already, way beyond what you would expect from the amount of capital that is presently in Bitcoin, that the blockchain is something extraordinary that has happened. Um, and I think this is because it really is an experiment with time of a kind that we've never seen before. And the way that it works is to actually um, connect crypto security to the construction of a past. Like if we just go just a little bit further, just even still down the abstract, he says, um, after talking about the construction of the, of, the, of the blockchain, the longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that it, come, that it came from the largest pool of CPU power. As long as a majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that are not cooperating to attack the network, they'll generate the longest chain and outpace attackers. Um, messages are broadcast on a best effort basis and nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the longest proof-of-work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. And I think as we dig into the uh, paper, we'll find even more um, clear descriptions of the way this, this works, but I think already at this point, it's possible to see that the security of the system relies on the creation of a past. That's what the blockchain is. It's an artificial past. Um, and um, there are lots of elements of great fascination to people who've, who've thematized time as a, as, a, as a problem of interest. One of them is that it's immediately tensed time. Um, it's not a it's not a, a Einsteinian dimensional time uh, of the kind that has been a sort of uh, philosophical scandal in the sense that people have constantly struggled. I mean, in the most extreme cases, being a figure like Bergson, to to say no, there's something about time that um, is not spatial that can't be confused with space. Uh, and of course, on the other side, this has been taken as a, a critique of Kant to say, well, Kant doesn't, he assumes time is different from space. He doesn't really give us good reasons to understand why time is not spatialized, why it isn't a dimension, uh, why in this distinction between arithmetic and geometry, we should find that persuasive given that analytic geometry allows us to move smoothly between those two things. Um, so. 
there's a kind of ragged philosophical concern about what is at stake in time being turned into space. And I think what we see here in the way that time is, is being reanimated technically by Bitcoin, that there is an extremely strong return of time of some, as something completely irreducible, as something tensed, as something uh, that the difference between the past and the future is is crucial aspect of what it is, that there's a sense of succession that's completely irreducible, that is not simply uh, being thought as positions on a line that could could be considered um, simultaneous or concurrent, but, is in, but this, this element of succession is again totally irreducible, and that the more past has been constructed on the blockchain, the more um, what has happened, the, the list of transactions, the events in that system are irreversible. They've been secured by being made irreversible, but they've been made real because of adopting certain temporal characteristics. They have a time structure that gives them their reality and one of course can say, I think going a whole hog maybe is a bit extreme at this stage, but we'll get there soon so I might as well, to say it's synthetic ontology. There is actually a construction of being. And I'll just say one final thing about Heidegger here and then try and open up a little bit. Um, because some of the things that uh, those of a more materialist inclination uh, t tend to see as a bit of a dead end in Heidegger, um, I think take on an interesting sense here. Um, and I'm referring particularly to the fact that because he's coming out of a phenomenological orientation, he's on a slide from the start towards an identification of time with Dasein, with the, we could say crudely, the subject, um, very crudely, but I'll let people bully me about that later. Um, and therefore, even to go even more crudely, and this is something I'm going to ret retract in a second, uh, there's a sort of idealist possibility here that he identifies time and being, time and Dasein, everything seems to collapse into some kind of phenomenological um, issue. Um, and of course, there's a sort of materialist reflex to say, this has just gone really badly off the rails. Um, there's been a kind of absolute implosion of reality here. Um, but I think when you look at the blockchain, you begin to see how these sets of connections might work in a much more interesting and subversive way. And I think it's, let me see what's the best way of saying this. If we entertain a deep suspicion about the blockchain as an ultimate criterion of reality, one that ultimately uh, transcendentally outflanks and supersedes anything that is phenomenologically accessible to us or that we might feel rooted in our own being or our own nature. Um, I think that we find ourselves like rehearsing some of these 
um, Heideggerian problems. Because in integrating the question of the production of time with the ultimate substrate of being, Heidegger makes a move that when transplanted onto the blockchain really uh, delegitimizes any move to saying that there could even imaginably be a superior transcendent criterion of reality that we could use to, uh, to um, second guess or to try to extrinsically, transcendently critique the decision the blockchain makes about being. If in the blockchain system, in the production of this synthetic time, there is a construction of the ultimate nature of reality. I mean, you could say, oh, well, what if there was some kind of um, super blockchain, there's something up the road, some higher kind of synthetic intelligence that made it was able to integrate time and being at a higher level. I don't think there's any reason to rule that out, except that I think we're in this position of being um, quasi-phenomenologists now, in the sense that we, whatever that thing or possibility might be, it's nothing to us. The blockchain is something. The blockchain is happening, and the blockchain is actually making a decision about the nature of reality. And that is a, that is a decision that nothing anywhere within our horizon of access is able to second guess. Um, if you think about something that we we invest with great authority as a as a as an, um, a, a, a criterion for reality, or something like natural the natural sciences, um, and of course there are reasons for that. Um, the reasons being that there are institutional mechanisms there that seem to provide very solid criteria that go way beyond anything that any individual scientist or group of scientists agree on or it can be subjectively reduced to beliefs of particular individuals or, or anything of that kind. But there is no reason at all why science should not be moved onto the blockchain. And it seems to me, inevitably, science will be moved onto the blockchain. And in being moved onto the blockchain, it will secure its criteria in a way that is currently beyond its capabilities. At the point where, uh, at the point where the whole of the natural sciences, and that's to say, in the language that is uh, more directly tied up with the Satoshi Nakamoto problematic, trust or credibility in any scientific statement finds its ultimate validation in the blockchain is the point where it becomes an unsurpassable criterion for reality. There's, we have access to nothing that can, that can plausibly cast doubt upon those criteria from a position of superiority. Everything we could bring to bear upon it is going to come from a lower level of 
self-evident ontological depth. Um, so I, I'm s s perhaps straying a little bit, but this is this is to me what the point of synthetic time is telling us that um, the blockchain projects a substrate of intelligence which is absolutely transcendental, and and those who are, who are tempted to criticize that find themselves, I would want to uh, propose, in the same position as someone who is making a naive criticism of Heidegger's particular moves about being time. You know, to, to suggest that, of course, we know that there is some kind of being beyond. Dasein, with Dasein being thought as originary temporalization. Of course, we know that it's crazy because if you go that way, you uh, go into some kind of strange kind of neo idealism. I think the blockchain shows us no, we don't do that. If we if we have that same transcendental mechanics, and now we're looking at this system, this artificial. Intelligent system, this artificial ontological and temporal production, then we can see that we are forced through critical rigor to accept that. that there is no criterion available to us that puts us in a position of leverage in relation to that decision. Um, so I've, I've said this really to give you some sense of, of where I'm going with that. But I'd rather, uh, I think it's probably sensible to take a step back and to just um, get to a point where people are confident that what's going on in this Bitcoin mechanism is uh, intelligible to them and it makes sense. And then I think um, bound up with that is then the question about what we think is indispensable philosophical framework for then for then evaluating that making sense of it and raising ultimately a, a set of perhaps more um, trivial questions on 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 this transcendental level but still gripping ones about what the prospects of Bitcoin is what we expect it to do what we expect its socio-political effects to be what kind of antagonisms it's likely to generate um, and uh, how it uh, forces us to rethink a lot of very basic uh, notions, one of them in particular being um, our understanding of what is money. Um, I think there's no sense of what money is that survives contact with Bitcoin without being radically transformed, and I think on the other side, there's this familiar question displaced of what can money do? I mean, I don't think we know what money can do. We have a very naive notion about it, but part of what is happening in the whole Bitcoin ecology with the explosion of this coin suffix that's being attached to all kinds of things, all these altcoins, um, we don't know what the limit of an altcoin is. Uh, something becomes a coin 
if it goes onto the blockchain. The blockchain is an ultimate criterion of reality. Anything that ultimately wants to be assertively real is going to end up on the, on the blockchain. Um, and the suggestion, obviously, by this coin suffix is therefore it is becoming a kind of money. And all our ontological questions are becoming internal to this monetary form critique that is being represented by Bitcoin. So yeah, may, I think I should sort of open it up a little bit rather than rambling any further into this territory. So, um, I don't know if it's, I just want to ask the first question because it's usually actually based on my experience it's hard to get a conversation going after such an intense and as you said controversial set of propositions. But I prepared a question, Nick, if you don't mind me asking. No, of course. You guys yes. can hear me, right? Okay. Of course. My question is, where do you put Bitcoin? Where do you put Bitcoin? How? Where do you put Bitcoin in relationship to how high-speed trading and and essentially finance, but also more particularly um, derivatives? in general fits into the picture? Is it like even one further step less less like a close to our phenomenological grounded understanding of time or or is it on par? Is it the same metaphor? Is it, is it basically the same or is it even more intense compared to so like high finance? Or high speed, um, high speed trading, high speed trading. Yeah. I mean, and particularly derivatives and how they have their own sort of like time. Are are you suggesting that this one is even less less human humanly involved? Um, there's lots of different elements of that question that that are all worthy of of pausing and and picking at actually, Mo. Um. I, Less humanly involved is not necessarily to start at the end is not necessarily the the formulation I would be most happy with. But to jump back to the start, um, I think there is absolutely no doubt that Bitcoin operates at a level of I will say philosophical radicality. But what I mean by that, as, as I hope I've I've said, is transcendental radicality that is far beyond anything that um, HFT and and simply computer accelerated financial transactions of the kind we've been familiar with um, represent. Now I know that there are very interesting discourses that would launch a, a kind of counter to that and the obvious one is, is Ayash's work um, so it's not that there isn't a lot to talk about there, but ultimately, if you say, um, what is the actual being of the financial substance that is being velocitized by HFT, the answer in the absence of the blockchain, in the absence of Bitcoin, is extremely conventional. It takes us to the same questions about money and the value of money and what is money and what does money represent that we've had. Um, being obviously modulated in interesting ways um, 
by the history of capitalism, but, but very familiar uh, problems about the nature and value of, of money. There's nothing actually by the fact that HFT is going into computers that is changing this thing about what is a, is a dollar. You know, um, the, the discussions concerning that about the nature of money, I don't think are hugely transformed by the fact that it that these processes are sort of highly accelerated. But on the contrary, with Bitcoin, there's something absolutely transformative for example. And a, and a question about the nature of money that is extremely radical in comparison to what we've uh, seen before. And a whole bunch of things simply can't be done with Bitcoin that can be done with conventional capital. And when I say say that that restrictive sense is already the dark precursor of this subtraction that I'm talking about. Like, for instance, you, you cannot have, um, you always have to have 100% reserves in any Bitcoin transaction. You can't do any kind of fractional reserve financial transactions. You know, that whole giant history of financial capitalism is simply uh, deleted by the by the Bitcoin future. You you cannot you cannot own a few bitcoins and lend out eight times as many in the way that you can with Um so um, you know we can see that that HFT is still is still currency transactions we're kind of familiar with. Bitcoin is forcing us to think of really new questions about what money is and it's far more unpredictable uh, what we're going to find out about money. So I could continue on but I think I would just stop here and try to get Ian Ross in to Hi. chime in. Hi. Hi, great. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you. So I have a, it, it's a fairly general question and I think it's part of the nature of this course to develop the answer to this question actually and that is I'm interested in, in the types of discourses that go into the conditions of objectivity with regards to certain practices. So for example, in metaphysics we talk a lot about what are the conditions of objectivity for science as an objective discourse. And I take that to be a large part of what metaphysicians and epistemologists are sometimes trying to do, for instance, justify the conditions of objectivity for science. So now that we're talking about Bitcoin, you know, there's sort of a maybe a radical new vocabulary or an application of philosophical vocabulary to pretty radically new concepts. And I'm really on board for that. I'm really excited to develop that and get into that mode. And already in the first 10 minutes, I can see that when we're talk if we're talking about reality is essentially being constituted by a blockchain. That is a new conception of reality. It certainly ties it to temporality in a way I didn't think before and makes me, makes me ask serious questions about the objectivity of history. Um, yeah. So as I preface this question, I think maybe the, the, the answer to this question is what unfolds over the course of this class, but I'm interested in how you see this type, the question is, how do you see this type of discourse as looking into, I will say, the conditions of objectivity, different from, say, 
the type of discourse that a metaphysician or an epistemologist might go into the question of what are the conditions of objectivity for science? Yes. Well, I would say, I think this is really helpful for Kavli because it is so uh, Kantian fundamentalist, if you, if you don't mind. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's the language of critique, mm. not the language of metaphysics. Mm. Um, and, and to talk about the conditions of objectivity is already to have um, uh, um, disdain a metaphysical possibility. Um, so, you know, I think there's lots of, part of what I would want to say about this, is, as I say, to be repetitive, is that there's a kind of arbitrariness in what one decides to take as illustrations here. And I, I'm hoping interactively with, with you guys that we can sort of settle on some preferred common exemplary models that we're all comfortable with and we can use because from my point of view it doesn't matter particularly you know on these books but to the kind of language you're uh, selecting there seems to me like someone like Foucault is extremely relevant to it mm. um, and I think um, Obviously, the first thing that I, I can be predicted already to say is that Foucault's a Kantian. I mean, <laughs> Foucault's doing critique. It's very recognizable transcendental philosophy, um, and that his whole question is is on uh, the difference between uh, these frames for the uh, of construction of objectivity and of, and the objects involved, and that those systems do not themselves and cannot objectify their own basic frames. So those frames act in a way as a constrictive transcendental limit on what can happen within these discourses or those epistemes or whatever at different times in his work he's, he's talking about. Um, but I think that this Bitcoin issue directly addresses this. I think it directly addresses this because it, the, the question it's ultimately asking um, I, I think a crucial word that I'll be using over and over again, and I really think it's utterly important to this, is criteria, which at a certain point becomes Deleuze and Guattari's preferred term for, again, something that is really indistinguishable from being in its use in Heidegger or other branches of the, of the transcendental tradition. And, and a criterion is really what chooses in the final instance, what what counts, what is real, what you cannot ultimately appeal beyond. It's like um, to use this Kantian judicial thing. There is, there is no court of appeal beyond this final criterion. And I think Bitcoin, actually, the blockchain in particular, which Yes, I don't want to get lost in this, but the relation between blockchain and Bitcoin is is something we're going to continually come back to. Great, but the blockchain actually, yeah. Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that 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 Bitcoin provides this uh, final criteria, and it's final. However dissatisfied people are with it, this is something we can look at. However dissatisfied. The, the, the implicit claim in the Bitcoin paper 
is that wherever you're concerned with anything that involves trust, and that absurd, and that um, that exhausts any claims to the nature of reality. If I if I make a claim about anything, if a doctor makes a claim about some medical fact, if a scientist makes some claim about the nature of the universe or about the results of a particular experiment, if anyone makes any kind of claim that requires trust or credibility, they are already pointing to an implicit criterion. And by taking this just in the field of money, Bitcoin says, well, let's see what happens if we really don't have to trust anyone. If we have a criterion that simply tells us, that decides what is real. You know, no one using Bitcoin is in any kind of position to choose what is real or not, or to choose whether they should be trusted, or to be put in a position where they have to trust someone who's telling them that something is or is not real. The blockchain is the criterion. It decides the nature of reality. And of course you can reject reject that whole thing and, and it will be interesting to see in what what alternative tribunal, what alternative sense of epistemological authority is then being invoked. Um, but short of that rejection, um, that criterion for reality is being decided by the blockchain. And the blockchain is the first thing that has ever happened on this planet that actually um, has a relation of transcendental superiority to the human mind as a source of ontological decision. There's nothing else that has ever existed um, that has actually trumped some kind of trust-based system, agreement between humans that they can agree or trust somebody or some group of people to tell them what is real. There's never been anything like that before. The, the blockchain, for the first time, says, "Don't trust anybody." You know, they, you are on the wrong ontological level if you're trusting people. Um, you know, they they know reality insofar as they are, have access to the public ledger of the of the blockchain that tells them what reality is. If someone tells you, "Look, the blockchain says this," then trust that. Um, anything else they say. Is just is just human into human, um, and so sorry I won't go on too much with that. But but you know in well, terms of your question, maybe maybe yeah maybe yeah yeah. If we bring Ryan into the yeah yeah sure. Ryan, do you do you want to ask him a question? Um, a lot of you were talking about high speed trading. And there's a lot of people, including myself, who are using Bitcoin as a medium to actually hack into these high-speed trading systems where you could short the euro using Bitcoin and get paid in Bitcoin. But how you could actually then be doing high-speed trading, but it's all being logged on the blockchain, even if you're trading, you know, the franc versus the euro or the dollar versus that. It's still being logged on this trustless system even though you're using these current financial tools or so there's this one website called one broker where you could you know short short oil but it's on the blockchain 
and just thought that was an interesting comment. I can't hear anyone. Nick, if you're trying to speak and respond, please. Uh, no, I actually muted Nick because he was fiddling around with his headset, and then I wanted to make sure that Ryan's question gets recorded properly. So, Nick, right. do you know how to unmute yourself? Yes, I think I did. Okay, go ahead. So it's with you again. You can you can talk. Well, no, I was just going to say it would if we've got a, a facility here, which I'm afraid I'm still haven't fully explored, that allows us to share. Eventually, we have to use this all kinds of materials, links, suggestions, ideas, quotes, citations. Yeah, and totally. so, you know, the, the sort of thing that Ryan was just talking about, if there is some uh, online resource that explains the mechanics of this system he was just talking about, it would be great to see that. And, and I'm sure other people too would, would like the chance to look at that at their leisure and try and understand exactly how that is working. Sure, I can share that. That would be great. Um. Do, do I have time to just look? There's a whole stream of little remarks now scrolling down my thing that I haven't kept up with at all, actually. Oh, are you? Can you still hear me? Because I have a little remark yes, here saying we lost. You, but, uh, but Ryan, if you wanted to say something, you you're also on. Oh uh, no, I was just commenting when you brought up high speed trading that there is this mechanical system. Maybe we can share it in the class, where you can. Yes, yeah, so you, you can. You can. Uh, you you probably have received the invitation to the classroom. If you haven't, I will make sure that you do, and then you can just add the links there to the classroom. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'll be. One, um, oh, I have a quick question. I, I don't know if I'm muted. Go ahead. Oh, okay. No, you're not muted. It's just, it's about um, the about the nature of reality with regards to the blockchain. I'm, I'm curious uh, because I've been doing the reading that you've assigned so far, so I'm just starting to understand how encrypted it is. And my question is, it seems, as I understand the digital, that anything can be hacked. That no matter how much one might think or how sophisticated a system is, one could theoretically always create another system with more CPU power that could trump it. And so if this is the case with Bitcoin, no matter how complex the protection schema is, um, isn't it, in theory, um, a very strange notion of reality if it could theoretically be rewritten by an extraordinarily powerful cloud computer that might pop out of nowhere when it's really important, in which case, or when, when one really wants to do so, and yeah. in which case, 
isn't um, isn't there always going to have to be not necessarily a trusted third party, but some kind of legal adjudicator to say, oh, okay, well, yeah, you did just hack it and you rewrote the blockchain, but sorry, that was illegal, so we're just going to bring it back. <laughs> yeah. I, I think obviously this touches on this huge set of issues that I hope we're going to get a lot of chance to talk about um, because um, it does obviously sound strange to suggest that I'll go obviously the whole hog with this to say that the very nature of being is dependent upon certain empirical systems of crypto security. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I totally see that. And, and I think the problem there is actually a real problem. I mean, if, if we again take this step back into these more, these prior phenomenological structures of trust, we know they can all be hacked. You know, I mean, the reason that Bitcoin exists is precisely because there is this endemic problem to trust claims to the nature, I can say to the nature of reality, but we can be much more down to earth about it. To, to trusting any claim that anybody ever makes is, is problematic. You know, I mean, and you you could construct this whole thing going right back to, through the history of skepticism in philosophy, you know, and just say, on a, on a certain crude reading of that, wash your hands of the whole thing. Nothing can be trusted, uh, or you know, in a modern form of that, Descartes' demon, you know, that, who who says to you basically, it's all a lie. You know, I'm just making you think whatever I want and you can't uh, believe anything that's going on in your mind. I mean, all those problems are real. You know, they're real, they're philosophically traditional problems, but they're just also simply practical reasons. You know, people do distrust science um, and it's not wrong to distrust it. I mean, it's, 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 there are there are scientific frauds. There are mistakes. There are a whole uh, set of uh, problems that can just systematically arise to do with confirmation bias and various types of social pressure. Um, and all systems of uh, truth or reality validation are vulnerable. So in this sense, Bitcoin is just in a continuum with a whole series of uh, problematic truth validation systems. I think the difference is that it, in a way that is technically extremely concrete, makes that problem um, something that can be offered this very precise solution to. And then, of course, we're then in a problem exactly of the kind that you say, well, do we, do we trust that on this just empirical level about, you know, this 51% attack or some other specific computer science-based problem that is going to just simply undermine its 
reliability as a criteria. And I think, I, I honestly, I'd rather just postpone a, 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 a more dogmatic response rather than just to say, absolutely, you know, that is absolutely a problem um, mm -hmm. that we think about. Mm -hmm. Great. Rachel, do you want to take over a little bit? You have to unmute yourself. Go ahead. Uh, I think I'm unmuted now, am I? Yes. Yes, yes. for yeah. sure. No, I, I, I was just I suppose, listening to what Ian was saying there about um, whether or not it was it was actually possible to, you know, how, how probable is it that you, you could hack, hack the, the blockchain, I guess. And I thought maybe it was interesting because the criterion that Nick is speaking about is 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 something obviously that's 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 distributed and that's particularly the case when you're looking at second generation kind of blockchain based technologies that are coming to the fore today. So things like Ethereum, for example. I don't know if people are familiar with Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. We must talk about that a lot. Cool. Um yeah, no, I I I, I didn't have a particular comment to make though or anything. Um I guess I was interested in, uh, yeah, how how this how this sort of this consensus or criterion was produced, and maybe thinking about the kinds of algorithmic forms of governance that are that are coming to the fore in 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 Bitcoin. Yes. So I don't know if that's something people are interested in discussing or discussing in the future. Oh, I think they have to be made interested in it, whether they are at the moment or not. Um, that's totally crucial. I mean, do you have anything more to say about? I mean, I think I was sort of thinking. I think algorithmic governance is something uh, that tends to be concrete and and will tie up with a lot of things that are familiar sort of socio-political discussions. And I was sort of assuming that those things might drift back a little bit until, you know, once we've got a certain confidence with, with the way this machinery is working, those mm -hmm. sort of questions would arise very strongly. But there's no reason to suspend them. I mean, if this is something that, that is pressing and urgent right now to people, then of course, go for it. I mean, there's, there's definitely no reason to, 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 to uh, so I don't know why it becomes so utterly incoherent. I was going to focus the question on uh, the same question, but like e e even 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 if this new generation of blockchain is still hackable, isn't this the fact that now we have to go around and hack that itself like a itself like a sign that what that ontological revolution or shift has taken place? This is, I think you, you want Colin to answer that question, is that right? Yes. I mean, if you're asking me, I would say, of course, yes. Um, yeah. So that's a boring uh, answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to like sort of like remind Ian and those who say, oh, well, there's always a human intervention of coming in and hacking it. I'm like saying the fact that hacking, like the, the default is machinic and that hack is human, itself a sign that this shift has taken place. Mm. 
I mean, there's a whole bunch of quite complicated uh, discussions. And when I say complicated, they're not technically difficult, but they're because this is also new, it's a bit hard to work out really what they're saying or what's going on in them. It's very much tied up with this question about this 51% attack and what it is someone would really be trying to do in that. You know, why? what is the strategic ambition for hacking reality? I mean, it's like previously it's been a quite an abstract question. Um, and obviously, because of where Bitcoin's come from, it, uh, it starts this hyper-concrete and, in a way, without being too condescending about it, sort of trivial level to do with, oh, they somehow feel they might end up with some more Bitcoins if they, if they totally blast reality at its foundation. That seems to me not, not very plausible. And I think that um, Satoshi Nakamoto already, right from the start before the thing was launched, is already saying that the set of incentives should be such that any trivial motive to do with um, economic optimization is going to be better satisfied by complying with the reality that's decided by the Bitcoin rather than by the blockchain than by subverting it. You know, if you're in a position to subvert the blockchain then you are, by definition, massively invested in the blockchain. It's set up this whole new structure and criterion for what is the nature of wealth. Um, you are this coalition, this agency, whatever it is that is, is put in a position of subverting it, is by, by definition, if it's doing that, it is the most interested player in the blockchain. And so, in this as a kind of paranoid model, and I'm not dissing it, it's a highly interesting, but as a paranoid model of what could happen to the blockchain, it's in that sense it deeply and intrinsically perverts. You know, you're saying it's this is a crude analogy, but it's not completely false as to say, you know, what if all the richest people in the world got together and subverted capitalism? I mean, you can say, well, maybe they, they could probably could do that. You know, they, if if you put together the the, the one hundred richest plutocrats on the planet and all their media power and all their resources, they could probably really wreck capitalism completely. Um, but then you say, well, you know, would that be what they wanted to do? I mean, it's uh, it seems unlikely that that particular constituency is going to find its natural strategic orientation satisfied in that direction. And I think this question about the 51% attack on the blockchain is extremely closely analogous to that. You know, you need to be basically running, you are in fact running the blockchain to be in a position to suffer. You know, it's, it's, it's not that it's yours, uh, but it's, it's uh, largely yours. It's more than fifty percent yours. You're producing more than fifty percent of the new resources coming off the blockchain. And doesn't that mean that in any kind of natural distribution of interests, that you will in fact be in a in a position of, of conservatism in relation to the into the blockchain? So it's it's kind of gets into some strange strategic territory this this question. Laura Laura, would you like to 
to speak because I see you make some comments. If you if you wanna if you wanna speak, unmute yourself and maybe maybe explain what you were saying. No, I was interested as well in this idea of the like the blockchain as basically the, the ultimate proof of reality versus um, versus uh, the I mean this thread that is actually like a, a very concrete thread of the 51% attack. I, I read like some articles explaining, for instance, um, I don't know, there have been some sort of attempts by some uh, kind of almost suicidal, selfish miners uh, that have tried, that basically was holding blocks without forwarding them to the blockchain to the purpose of, I don't know, destroying the the pool they were mining in, this kind of thing. And apparently, um, I actually, I, let me just find the article, I was looking at it now. There is, I read this article a few months ago that is kind of explaining what the, 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 the ecosystem, or I mean, what is the, the sort of like market division of um, of mining is mainly pools, but apparently there is this ghash, whatever, that it's potentially already holding the 51%. So obviously there are no good reasons to scramble the blockchain eventually, but the moment in which uh, someone has got the potential to do that, isn't that, again, someone or something, or some entity, like for instance a mining pool, isn't that sort of like, I don't know, I mean, isn't that going to um, challenge uh, this objectivity of the blockchain in defining reality? I don't, um, I don't yeah. I, I don't, as I say, I think this is a very close to, to question before, and I think it's one that is perennial, or at least is going to really be insistent. Um, and we're going to hear a lot of it about it, you know, from outside, uh, as, as certainly as this becomes more, the social impact becomes greater of this, and it becomes more influential. Um, but my basic proposition on this is that we don't have any extrinsic source of authority or tribunal that gives us that kind of leverage anymore. I mean, let, let's just say, in a kind of science fiction scenario, that there is, we can, we can conjure up uh, the necessary incentives. And it's not perhaps that impossible. I mean, I would say the most obvious one is that um, the United States government, at a certain point, decides to simply sacrifice the resources necessary to destroy the Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain, because it's a threat to the current economic order of the world. I mean, just I'm not wanting to promote that incredible thing, but it seems to me, yes, you know, you could imagine that sort of scenario. But even if you can do that, uh, what are you thrown back to? 
you know, we, we, we will already know that the criterion of reality provided by the blockchain is m superior to anything that has previously existed in the world. The fact that it can then be uh, destroyed by some act of political will doesn't return us to anything we can trust. It returns us to the same problem of massive distrust that we had that was actually the stimulus for the creation of the blockchain with the added distrust that by out of some particular form of geopolitical interests someone has decided to blow up reality. Um, you know, we're in a we're in a worse position in terms of systematic distrust than we were before. So again, you can say I think it's I wouldn't at all want to rule out court that you, you're going to end up on some skeptico nihilistic thing that simply there cannot be a criterion of reality that can survive suicide attacks by certain formations of blurry mm. power existing in the world. I mean, they, that could be construed. Um, but I think that even if you do that, you're still saying, you're not in any way denying the fact that this is the way that a criterion of reality that went beyond anything that had been possible before in history was constructed. Okay, um, Nick, let's just maybe, maybe history can help here a little bit. Let's put it this way. Can there be an analogy made between between what you're proposing about the potentials of Bitcoin or the like the ontological potentials of Bitcoin as to when central banks in Europe and then followed by United States in the early 20th century basically uh, ignored the, the age-old sort of like monetary policy based on gold and property and went with fiat currency and basically yes. broke broke with the broke with the sort of like the physical material basis of how money was produced uh, absolutely in America like I, I because I don't I'm not really familiar with the history of that in Europe and at one point Bank of England kind of like switched to fiat currency and at one point other yeah. European central banks sort of like were sort of like moved to yeah. that direction but we, yeah. With Federal Reserve, we have certainly the creation of a new entity, which was set yeah. up in a way, even separate from government in a lot of ways, right, so to, to do that. And then if that's the case, then what is the difference with fiat currency here? I mean, I mean I'm just asking this question. Please don't say they're like obvious questions, because I think, I think that, to me, as someone no, who's no, no, like, no, totally crucial. And then that, but also, if we're going for this, so I have a second question. If we're if we're gonna embrace embrace your proposition, how can we sort of like ensure that it doesn't end up with a new sort of like new form of Marxist sort of like money is the basis, uh, you know what I mean, like a base and superstructure here in which sort of like Bitcoin will become the new Marxian base, and then all other activities would sort of like be superstructural to that. Well, let me take these one one at a time, can I, Mo? Because I think the first point, on its own, is so hugely important that I'd really rather not be taken beyond that just initially. Um, because I think that you're absolutely right to say that the m movement 
off the gold standard and into the regime of paper money and all its complexity and all the phases that were involved in that was an ontological revolution. And I think that we can see that by the fact that, to take the most, I think, emblematic figure of this, uh, Jean Baudrillard is the philosopher of the end of the gold standard. I mean, you know, the, 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 the most radical tendencies in transcendental philosophy after uh, that event had taken place is that reality had ceased to exist. And, and it had ceased to exist because uh, value had become a political decision. You know, at the end of the day, once that, that incredible gamble, that incredible step of saying that uh, macroeconomic policy decides questions that previously were based on these um, extremely dense, obscure criteria coming out of history of how much wealth there was and forms it could take, to, to move beyond that to this thing where, no, what you have is political decisions. Um, you actually decide uh, how much money you're going to produce. You make a whole bunch of, of decisions mediated through that regulatory action on the financial system uh, about um, money production and about the relation of money to some base of redeemable substance and finally that redeemable substance is completely annihilated and all you have then is uh, politics or political economy in a sense that was not anticipated at all at the point that term was introduced. So I think absolutely that's right. Um, you know, the, 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 the history of money is a history of ontological crisis. Um, Bitcoin, of course, is a counter-revolution in that respect. You know, I mean, the, the driving impetus of people in the initial stages of this is to say, uh, we are in absolute state of rebellion against this new ontological regime. You know, it is not acceptable that these central political financial institutions have ontological discretion that can choose what is real. Um, that is being repudiated and that takes us back I think to this point you know when the Satoshi Nakamoto uh, paper is talking about trusted third parties that are to be subtracted you know now initially we're just talking about in any particular peer-to-peer -peer relationship it simply ignores, can bypass, does not invoke a trusted third party. But, it, but it, this is a war cry of incredible radicality. It's saying that the whole institutional structure of the global economy as we currently know it is to be deleted. Um, and it's is to it, be deleted. It, yes, yeah, sorry, Mo. No, 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 go ahead. I don't want to cut you off halfway. Well, it's just, but I think that, that, so while I'm totally agreeing with you that there is this continuous ontological import to the history of money, I think it's quite clear that between the process that you're describing, which is the basic trend of monetary history up to uh, the end of 
the last millennium and a little bit beyond, and what we're now looking at with this innovation is one of extreme antagonism. And, and it really is an attempt to, to produce a... Um, okay, okay, so... Deep so so the, the question here then, maybe, maybe, maybe my question at least is, uh, does, like in relation to gold standard, right? What, because yeah. gold standard was always already a very like proto form of um, humans deciding, but in the name of gold or in the name of the explored mining or in the name of gold reserve, right? So it was sort of like a shared domain between the existing truth behind the words of, say, central bankers or whoever who said, oh, this money is based on this amount of gold and the price of gold, which is itself always, always determined by humans, to go into a more transparent model in which humans just took over and said, no, there's, there should be no illusion about gold. It's just us deciding whether we are limiting ourselves to this gold thing, which is much harder to manipulate and manipulate and sort of like there's too many things to do in order to make it look objective. Why don't we just drop it and call it like um, Federal Reserve Fiat Banking? Are we and basically gold being something that comes from Earth or is geo like the geo base, which was a geo human sort of like a a, a geo anthro sort of like mix that decided the fate of money went to completely anthro and now we're back to a system of like maybe not natural but like technological human and then we're and basically basically the questions that are that Lori and and Ian were asking actually has to do with like would 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 politicians or powerful people use the Bitcoin as a cover to point to an objective non-human system whereas they are still somehow like in the time of gold are are not maybe in charge, but it's it's a negotiation between what the machinic or inhuman uh, Bitcoin can offer objectively and how much leverage they have on manipulating it and distorting it. I think it's I don't know. I think there's a lot there that maybe needs to be unpacked into slightly more accessible units like I mean the final the final point how, what are we thinking of when we're thinking about this manipulation you know it's a it's the, the, obviously the Bitcoin protocol is completely open source and can be inspected by anyone there's nothing there at all that is concealed I mean everyone knows if they're interested how Bitcoin works down to the exact details of its code um, after it's launched, which of course it, it was almost immediately after this paper was was produced, then it's completely then set in stone on this simulation of gold, and it's no more uh, open to political uh, discretion than the gold reserves of the earth. There are 21 million bitcoins to be produced ever. That's the absolute limit of the system. Everyone knows that. Um, if an exchange uh, happens, it's registered on the blockchain as a, as, a, as a real event, and that's its criterion of reality. Um, so there's no, there's no room for any political negotiation about 
what is happening in the Bitcoin system or what you know there, there, there's a of course there's a whole uh, complicated system of political uh, complexity around Bitcoin and we've have seen nothing yet it's going to be I'm sure huge and extremely involved and mass rebellion but in terms of Bitcoin itself it's like super gold I mean it's like there's just it's you know gold was more sub subject to the double spending problem it was more subject to various kinds of discretion than the Bitcoin protocol is um, so I'm just not seeing how what you're envisaging when you when you talk about that um, sort of political manipulation of that. Hey, Nick, I was wondering if you could um, elaborate a little bit further on the connection that you drew between the, the double spending problem and it having kind of metaphysical valence. Because when I was right. um, reading the stuff before, I kind of just like loosely interpreted that as a sort of empirical glitch. So, right. so can, you, can you explain yes. a little bit more how that's working? Yes. Um, and this is something again. I know I'm sort of drawing up this whole list, and we've probably got like 50 points now that are all huge, and we have to spend hours on on each one of them. But this is one <laughs> for sure with the spending problem. And um, I th I think that it's really beautifully insidious, you know, because exactly like you say, it seems so narrowly technical. I mean, on the very narrowest level, it seems purely with a digital currency system. You have this particular problem of the fact that because uh, you can produce digital artifacts for free, um, therefore to say that you're only producing one of these and passing one of them on is a statement that requ requires extreme trust. You know, if I say, look, this this particular little packet of bits uh, I'm giving to you, and I promise I haven't copied it. You know, you have to trust me extraordinarily with that. So in that way, it brings to a crisis because because the temptation to cheat is so immense, it forces this to become an explicit issue. But I think once that happens, its retroactive effect becomes absolutely cataclysmic. It's an avalanche that goes right back. And you know, it's it's probably worth trying to do it in stages. Um, because um, you can see it as it gets, you go back a few stages and it's relatively easy and then it becomes a bit weirder and then it becomes more and more and more strange. I mean, in the, at first, obviously, like paper money, you have counterfeiting. And, you know, because paper is cheap and what paper represents is worth quite a lot, you have the double spending problem in a very recognizable form there. And you're looking quite quickly at the specific nature of monetary signs that I think we have to get onto. I was very naively thinking this was second block material, but I think 
if everything rushes forward, of course. Um, so, you know, what is going on, first of all, with a paper note? And a paper note has um, uh, two aspects to it. One, one, it has a substantial aspect, which is almost nothing. So everyone jokes about um, this quote from Voltaire that's absolutely brilliant about all paper money eventually reverts to its natural value, which is zero, or, you know, it's worth that how much that scrap paper is worth. So this it's substantially almost nothing. Like the, the digital escalation from that is very slight. And it has a promise written on it. You know, I promise to provide the bearer with a certain value. So it's a, so it has been traced back, I think one can trust this, to gold receipts. You know, the 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 origin of the paper money is is actually a warehouse receipt. You go to a goldsmith, you give them a chunk of gold, they give you a piece of paper, and the piece of paper basically says, "I will return your piece of gold." And if you want that that to be what they call a bearer bond, that's to mean it ha it can be used as money. It says, anyone who comes to me with this piece of paper is entitled to collect the lump of gold that you deposited in my warehouse. So you have these two aspects to the monetary sign. You have its substantial, its substantial value, and which is almost nothing, and you have its its semiotic value. I mean, I'm tempted to, to use this Deleuze-Guattari language of that expression and content. It's, it's expression is a promise. Um, Oh, sorry, it's, I think it works better if you go the, the other mm. round. Um, the 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 content is the sorry, I'm tangling myself in and out. The content is the gold in the bob, and the expression is this piece of paper with some with some writing on it. And now, just sorry, bear with me. I'll, I'll try not to spin so too much. You you go back one stage further. You say, oh, surely this is the origin of the double spending. It's quite visible there. You know, anyone can just get fire up the printing press once there's this split between content and expression and they can pump out the, the paper and they're not adding any gold to the vault and there's your double spending problem in almost perfect form. You go back to a coin that the substantial um, content of the of the coin is right there. You know, it's supposed to be, it's got written on it, this is includes one ounce or whatever it is of gold. It is an ounce of gold. But already it's split. It's already because it's a sign, it's split. And the double spending problem there is much trickier and more uh, intricate, but it's all these various things that the, the shorthand for a whole bunch of different techniques for this is coin clipping. You know, the famous Gresham's law of bad money drives up good is basically responsive to the coin clipping thing. That it says it's a whatever amount of gold it is, but if you can clip the edges off and keep that those gold shavings and sell them separately and then pass on the coin, then you're producing this this split. And you are already doing a double spending thing. You know, you're not maybe not quite doubling. You'd only do double spending if you cut the coin in half and passed half on for its full value and you still have the other half. But you're because you're pushing this semiotic split in the nature of the of the monetary medium, you're there's already something that is structurally, philosophically the double spending problem taking place. As soon as you've got coin clipping or 
from the government side, adulteration, which was done over and over again. It's not some fantastic thought experiment. I mean, the Roman emperors would at a certain point run into financial crisis and they'd mix their silver coins with some place metal and still on the coin it would say it was certain amount of silver, but actually it was only half that amount of silver. And if I, if I take that and say half that amount of silver, then perfect double spending. It's exactly the same double spending problem. You trust them, you trust what it says on the coin, and uh, you, you think that they're giving you a certain amount of silver, but actually they have twice that amount of silver because they split it between two coins, and now they have twice the apparent amount of uh, money, um, but only the, the same amount of silver. So it's again, we haven't lost the philosophical threat. Adulteration of a coin by in the, in the royal mint with base metals is the double spending problem, modulated historically, but still totally recognizable. But then you go back to any kind of linguistic or semiotic system and you say, this basic problem of the sign as a money system or a system of value, that it's cheap. You know, when you say words are cheap, what are you really saying there? You're saying that's still the double spending problem. You know, you can churn out promises and words and I will do this, I promise, you know, and there's no cost for that. Substantially there's nothing. Um, but you're treating them as if they have some kind of real currency to them. Um, and, you know, go back to DNA. You know, you've got this code um, and, and because code is cheap, a virus can produce the code, but just like you can produce, you can counterfeit paper, or you can make false promises, or uh, with a digital system you can prove. A virus is doing double spending problem in biology. It's, you know, your body is told, oh, you get this set of genetic instructions and they mean X because, you know, we've worked, we've been, we've labored and gone through the ordeal of natural selection in order for this particular chunk of code to mean something. And along comes a virus churning out a billion cheap copies of the same instruction and getting the same payoff. So I think that the double spending problem formally is something that happens as soon as you have a sign. As soon as you have a code, as soon as you have any kind of semiotic medium, you have something that is absolutely isomorphic with the double spending problem as you find it addressed by Bitcoin, you know. Like if your body had Bitcoin, had the blockchain to deal with viruses, it would be thrilled. I mean, it needs one. And I'm sure we'll find that there are weird kind of genetic security mechanisms that down the line will, oh, isn't that doing, uh, isn't that a blockchain in the immune system? I mean, um, I'd be surprised if that isn't going to be discovered because it's the problem that's being addressed is one that anything afflicted by virus is already suffering from. So um, where's the, the transcendent content in that? Like, like the sign signifier, um, or like the content expression split still happens um, in uh, in imminent reality. So where's the, the link to some kind of like transcendent element guarantee for that? Yeah. Well, the transcendent element comes in if 
anything afflicted by the double spending problem, and it, if it doesn't have a solution, so let's just, I'm just going to now treat, I think quite reasonably, all Bitcoin is, is a solution to double spending. If you don't have that solution, then you need a trusted third party to oversee, monitor, arbitrate the circulation of signs in order to uh, in order to eliminate to the best to the capabilities of that system the double spending system. You know, if if you don't have any way to stop people counterfeit it. As soon as you've got paper money and, and people can just get a printing press and produce paper money, you need some kind of security apparatus that hangs forgers and makes counterfeiting illegal and checks to see whether money has been forged or not. And, and that obviously is this transcendent element. You know, and again, I mean I know this is pushing the whole thing to an extreme, but it's pushing it to extreme in order to try and Really hold on to how how philosophically radical this notion of double spending is. Your body has some kind of element that will be this trusted third party to deal with these viral problems. And I think we can see that you know it's these particular you know everyone said about HIV the most extraordinarily insidious element of this virus is that it attacks the T-cells that are supposed to be the trusted party that decide whether you're virally infected. You know, um, it's like you have a whole transcendent apparatus of control of immunity that's deciding what is and is not an acceptable uh, code transmission within your body. Um, and they obviously, let you, because they are, as you say, everything is in it. So of course they can be hacked and subverted and, and you can virally infect the immune system that is supposed to be protecting you against that. But you still have what is functionally a trusted third party between the transactions that are even happening between your cells. You have to because if you just if you Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, and well it's just if you don't have that, you get double spending to death. Even as an organism, even before language, you know, as soon as you've got a code, uh, if it can just be replicated for free and therefore exploit the benefits, you know, this is surplus value of code for all of Deleuze and that. It's like as soon as you've got DNA, something can just ride on that code uh, because code is cheap, uh, and what the code is doing is expensive. Cool. Yeah, I get you now. So the, the invocation of um, a trusted third party to mediate in these manners is the transcendent context. And Bitcoin is the yeah. best thing that completely does that. I mean, that's an absolute anchor in this. The, the trusted third party, I mean, what the great thing about this paper is that it's so consistent with this. You know, it's absolutely clear. It's just as consistent as the Kantian usage of metaphysics, the, the, the Satoshi Nakamoto use of trusted third party is an absolutely kind of clear vision of what this element to be subtracted by Bitcoin as monetary critique. Um, okay.
Any other questions? Because I have. A oh, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Me? Okay. Yes. Um. Yeah. I had another question. Um. I guess it relates to what we were talking about before and, and to the problem of double spending. So, does it come down to I don't know? Perhaps the relation between trust and belief, uh, because right, Bitcoin started to acquire value and became a currency, like after Nakamoto's paper, but because people starting to use it, right? I don't know. It is customer. It is. It is said at the moment. I mean, the moment in which Bitcoin started to acquire value is when someone sent ten thousand Bitcoin to the other side of the of the ocean of the Atlantic. To buy a pizza to someone, right, or something like that. So, the fact that Bitcoin isn't it doesn't require trust implies some sort of like underlying belief in the system. I don't know. Is it some sort of like theological almost? Like, I mean, I guess it. it I don't know. I, I, I'm still thinking about, for instance, like the, the like ten attack and also the double spending problem. Is if a transaction doesn't appear on the blockchain, it means right. that it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. So you have to believe that that is true. No, well, I'm not sure about this. I, I don't know. I would be reluctant to, to to make this move because I think the issue you're getting to definitely is something very real if you come at it from the other side. But if you come at it directly from the side at stake here, I don't think it, it's right because the point is what Bitcoin, uh, what Bitcoin tells you, you know, is beyond any, a belief and trust are on the same, are on the same side of the equation and Bitcoin is on the other side. And over the side. It's like, all the all the uh, solution to the double spending problem tells you is that this Bitcoin or part of a Bitcoin has not been spent twice. You know, if if I give you a Bitcoin, you have one of the world's 21 million Bitcoin. It's immediately taken from my Bitcoin account, put into your Bitcoin account. Um, none of that requires any belief or trust. You know, it's simply that's the that's what the blockchain does. It's, it makes it impossible for you for me to give you a bitcoin and then also give the same bitcoin to someone else, or in some way to devalue the fact that you now have a one twenty one millionth part of the world bitcoin stock or whatever it happens to be. I think we're on fourteen million or something at the moment. So I think there's no belief needed or no trust. Now, of course. If you then say, well, what in the hell is the point of a 21 millionth of this completely virtual, abstract, zero trust currency system worth? Why should I believe it has any value? Then, of course, you're right. I mean, you know, you're in Bitcoin doesn't tell you any reason to believe that. It, it, what it tells you absolutely stops at the point when it says you have one Bitcoin and it's worth a Bitcoin because. You know, there's not another one being copied of it. That's it. That's the complete limit of of its of its message. 
Um, mm. So I think the point is we have to separate these two issues out, and and the and the one that you're now bringing to the table about well, what is a Bitcoin actually worth? What what is it worth to have this thing that we know has not been double spent, and that's all we know about it? Um, it's left completely open. There's nothing in the system that's going to tell you that, or pretends right. to tell you. But for instance, I don't know. Say the the value of Bitcoin against the dollar or any other fiat yeah. currency. Yeah. There is some kind of like right underlying belief in there, which obviously depends on like the market and the whatever like. Yeah. So I'm sure there are. Yeah. Totally, there are beliefs brought to bear all kinds of beliefs, but they are not imminent to the Bitcoin system. They are being brought yeah. in from outside. Yeah. Bitcoin makes no promises about what it's worth in relation to the dollar at all. And that's for the, the market will then play that out and everyone has their own beliefs and expectations and forecasts and everything that will come into play on that. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, the, so the point being, Bitcoin is not representational at all. No, I think that's fair. I mean, I think all this semiotic language needs to be processed in the course of this because I think it is um, it, it's an absolute revolutionary event in the history of science and it's deeply unsettling for everything that we think we know about the way science works or what a sign is or all of this, all of this stuff. So I'm continuously drawn into a kind of language of semiotics and at the same time I'm aware that all of these terms have been unsettled fundamentally and need to be really resettled within this new uh, ecology but I, I would certainly in first instance be totally happy with what you say. I don't think a Bitcoin, all a Bitcoin represents um, is simply what is completely this open secret of the of the Bitcoin protocol that this thing is a secure 21 millionth of the total stockpile of Bitcoins that will ever exist on the planet and that is the content there's no there's no other uh, intrinsic meaning to it whatsoever how do we I mean we're, we're basically over reviewing I guess the entire other seven sessions because all the questions kind of like will at some point be taken up or deemed unnecessary or something, right? right. But yeah. the, limit, the limit to Bitcoin and then its own reference to the old pricing system, which is money, because as you know, Bitcoin has its own... Bitcoin is a pricing system, but itself has a price. In the old human-based phenomenological, like, I mean, I'm using phenomenological, but I'm using your metaphor, right? So, so the fact that Bitcoin is limited, then what kind of relationship Bitcoin has with the, you know, this, this loop? There's a loop there, right? Or there isn't? Sure. Am I yes. Totally. I mean, this is something, this is another one of these big 50-point uh, list, several-hour things that we need to talk about. But obviously, as a cybernetic phenomenon, Bitcoin is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I'm, I'm going to add a link for people to look at the next time, which I think is very suggestive and, and interesting. In fact, maybe I could just read one little 
tiny little quote from there. It's a kind of, one of the things I like about this whole area is lots of kind of slight pieces that are not, have no philosophical pretension and in some ways are even quite, you know, almost deliberately superficial, but actually latch onto something of real gravity. And this, I think, is one of these examples. And it's from, there's actually a site called philosophyofbitcoin.com I found out today. Um, and it, this is from a post called Bitcoin Store of Value Paradox. Now, and I just want to stop on one point because paradox immediately obviously gets me super excited because paradox in my mind is just a word for cybernetics. I mean, I think when people talk about paradoxes, they're talking about cybernetics uh, in, a, in a sort of naive way perhaps or, or, or the opposite. Um, so anyway, this, this piece is... Ultimately, the only thing that matters in people's decision to use bitcoins as a medium of exchange is their expectation that enough other people will accept it as payment in the future. That alone is enough basis for people to buy bitcoins now and to invest in the bitcoin infrastructure now. The circularity involved in the argument is unmistakable but unavoidable and, according to the bitcoin enthusiasts, unproblematic. That's just the thing about a good that is used as money or is expected to be used as money in the future. People value the good because they think that enough other people will value it. The circularity is just the network effect in action. Now obviously network effects, which we'll come across a lot, they, they're really important in this whole discussion. The discussion that we've just been having, um, you know, starting with Laura's point about um, why are bitcoins actually worth anything? You know, we can see why you can't be cheated, but why are you not being cheated about anything important? And then you're already in this question, exactly as this quote says, of these network effects. Um, because if money is of value as a medium of exchange, it's valuable precisely insofar as other people find it valuable. Um, if it's useful to other people, it's useful to you. This is how network effects obviously work. There's no foundation to it. There's no, there's no ground to it at all at this level except the fact that it has a particular cybernetic profile to it. One in which of this spiraling sense of the more people find it useful, the more useful it is and the more people you find it useful. And obviously this can go in, in theory in either direction. You know, and you could have the same kind of cybernetic loop of disinvestment in a, in a in a medium of exchange as you can have in a as a, in a as a positive in investment loop in that. Um, so sorry, Mo, I, I sort of feel I've slightly lost your point, but also this no no this no, it's meant to directly address. Well, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that the, the next step after the more people use it is that the more valuable it gets based on like its own price within the classic price system, right? Well, this is the, of the, of the uh, three really essential uses of money that we'll keep coming back to. There's that has to be a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. And this third thing is where we are now, isn't it? There's a unit of account. That's to say, it's being used uh, as a way of uh, calibrating values between different value systems and obviously because of the world we're in the existing currencies have an overwhelming dominance in that area I mean if you're not trans I mean 
I, I'm sure I'm not untypical in that I just translate everything into US dollars all the time because it's just the global dominant unit of account. And this is obviously what Bitcoin is challenging in an interesting way, in a historical processual way. It's not challenging instantly. Anyone who tells you why aren't you at this moment thinking of all values in terms of bitcoins rather than US dollars is is even I mean I'm an enthusiast but that is fanatical you know um, it has to be said um, but ultimately it's intrinsic in Bitcoin that there's nothing to prevent it in theory being a substitute unit of account and if you if you think it's better money if you if you think that actually it captures the essence of what a monetary system should be better than the politicized fiat paper money system that is currently dominant, then I think implicit in that is the notion that ultimately it will become the dominant unit of account. So I think that what you're pointing to there is this very turbulent transitional issue. You know, a transitional phase, no one can see how long it could last or whether we're just you know, going even in one direction. But for sure, there's an implicit question about if you're saying this amount of dollars equals this amount of bitcoins, you're, you have these very different um, potentials being sort of mutually weighed against each other. You know, and you can look at it both ways. You can say, oh, I'm still, the US dollar hasn't yet collapsed to the point that I'm stopping to, that I've ceased to value it in Bitcoins. I will still, I'm still prepared to part with Bitcoins for a certain quantity of US dollars. So now people have clearly seen that as something that's as a, a finite historical phase, but there's this notion we'll definitely get to called hyper Bitcoinization. That is the model of transition out of existing fiat currencies to a dominant Bitcoin system, which from the point of existing currencies looks like hyperinflation. Where looks like um, what? Sorry? Hyperinflation. Oh. Hyperinflation. It's a very specific form of hyperinflation. And the guy who's done the most to promote this idea is a guy called Daniel Kravitz. I don't know whether, I'm sure I'm, he must be on my list of, um, of, of interesting guys to read. Uh, if not, I'll certainly make sure he is. Um, now my, my, actually, I was going to suggest that if, if the number of Bitcoins are limited, yeah. people increasingly use Bitcoin and that will, that will increase the price, that the dollar price of Bitcoin what we actually yes. have in fact is that if we ever move away from dollar into Bitcoin economy, things will increasingly become cheaper in Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself is becoming more uh, as, like value assertive, right? Yes, on that trend, what happens is the value of Bitcoin against everything rises. But against these currencies that are undergoing this catastrophic hyper-Bitcoinization process, uh, it simply becomes, it reaches a point where no one with Bitcoins is even interested in considering 
exchanging them for these dying currencies. And at that point, that's what this hyper-Bitcoinization process is, is that, is that you, you've got to, you know, you'll go back to a Weimar Germany, you've got your wheelbarrows of US dollars saying, please, can someone give me a fraction of a Bitcoin for this stuff? And everyone is saying, what is that? You know, where we, no one's interested in that stuff anymore. It's, it's useless. You know, tomorrow it will be worth half what it is now. You really think I want to take on the trouble of trying to, um, of trying to dump a, a wheelbarrow of, of dying dollar bills onto someone else. You know, it's more trouble than it's worth. And so, now I'm not at all saying that this is a model of, of, of the future that people should uncritically adopt as, as inevitable, but it's, I think it's, it's directly addressing your, your point there, for sure. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. I had a quick question, uh, Nick. I could probably read a little more about this, but I was wondering if um, Bitcoin laundering is possible or going on because it seems like a very transparent circuitry. You would think you, even if you created artificial accounts, you could trace it back to the original owner. Right. Yeah, yeah. So is, there, is that an issue? or is A huge, fascinating issue, yes, definitely. Because I think when it was launched, it was... It, and in fact, this is one thing that I think is extremely... Uh, if I was going to find a point with this Bitcoin paper that I'm honestly tempted to treat as a kind of gospel thing, but if I really wanted to pick at it, you've pointed to exactly the right place. Because the, the rhetoric, is, even by Satoshi Nakamoto himself, in the early stages, was that this was, for all intents and purposes, a fully anonymous type of money. And of course, he calls it cash. The title, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And, and, and the meaning of cash is that it's absolutely anonymous money. You know, you could take cash from one person to another, it's completely untraceable. If it is traceable, it's not cash. Now, as you say, that's an extremely stretched claim, given that every transaction that happens is publicly recorded for inspection by anybody um, on, the, on the ledger. Now, of course, the response is that's on its own not going to catch Satoshi Nakamoto. He, he's going to say, well, I know that account A passed to account X a certain amount of Bitcoins, but what account A and what account X are in real life are completely hidden. Um, and then from there, you get into quite complicated technical questions about how you actually then go to identify particular Bitcoin accounts and their transactions with real-life um, economic agents. But it's certainly possible to go much further in that process than a naive sort of crypto-libertarian reading of this initial paper would, would suggest that once you're in Bitcoin, everything you do is completely safe. I mean, the only thing that I'd say on the other side, is that the fact that you have had things like um, the Silk Road and these and these online black markets using Bitcoin and engaging in absolutely standardized 
transactions in illegal substances and all of these other criminal activities shows that actually from the functional point of view it does an okay job generally at um at certain, maybe it's maybe below a certain scale of economic activity you're, you're safe I mean but it's certainly that historical record suggests that it, there's certainly nuance to this discussion it's it's you know you, you can clearly treat it as cash to a considerable extent but nothing like the extent that a, a naive take up of, of, the, of the project would, would suggest Yeah, thank you. Um, it's very interesting. I had <clears throat> a couple questions I had written on the side there. One was just with regards to Bruno Latour's actor network theory, when um, I think Mo suggested it's a non-representational currency and um, it made me think about how in Ant Actor Network Theory, the tour talks about wanting to avoid using vocabulary of semiotics um, and to stop talking about meaning altogether in some sense. I was wondering, um, Actor Network Theory, um, it's pretty easy to criticize, I think, and it's also very problematic if you think of it as a kind of grand narrative, everything is a network. But maybe with Bitcoin, it's, it, it might be a particularly good model in some sense. Um, <clears throat> so, just as a question, is there is there is it worth looking at his work in relation to Bitcoin, um, and have you done so? No, I would have to say it's not something that I have looked at at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, I will take that as a uh, a task, um, <laughs> at least at least on some superficial level of scraping um, yeah. that I will I will try and undertake. Cool. Okay, I have I have another thing. Which is similar, but it's not in relation to Latour, but in relation to sort of like Latourians, like Harman and the whole like S R O O claims of is Bitcoin like Harman's object is is redrawing the world? Is is that a good model to? Because to me, the problem with S R is that in 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 rejecting Correlationism, and in rejecting phenomenology the way it does, it actually it actually embraces it and and wears it again. So basically, basically like Peter Walkerdale, I think that OOO is a, is an intense but closeted form of phenomenology. So I call it closeted Right. So how do we make sure that this doesn't be? Uh, what is the difference here with Bitcoin? Well, I'm having more trouble seeing what the connection is honestly because I mean there's nothing withdrawn at all in Bitcoin as far as I can see I mean it's like totally it's totally public it's open source the public ledger I mean there's no claim to any kind of withdrawal uh, you know ontological withdrawal in this harm sense at all that I can see I mean um, everything is completely exposed and its relation to ontology seems to me is going the other way round. That it's like um, it, anything that is put onto the Bitcoin, onto the block. Sorry, I keep confusing those terms, but they are confused. Anything that's put onto the blockchain is given a criterion of trustless validation. 
Um, so it's in a way impossible to withdraw something onto the Bic onto the blockchain. I mean, I just don't even know how you'd start trying to articulate that. So maybe this is kind of probably connected to the previous question. I'm, but at this point, I'm not seeing how they articulate at all these two these two issues. It seems to me that um, fair enough. Fair enough. Um. So, one thing else to consider is that this is the first class, and maybe maybe some procedural stuff in terms of assignments, yes, and research can also be talked about. We're kind of getting close to the end of the class. We basically have about uh, twenty-five minutes. Yes, I think, uh, as I say, we have a resource that I'm afraid I just um, only slowly working my way through this stuff and it's it's a I think everyone has this thing um, sorry just give me one second uh, 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 uh. yes okay so it's this Google Classroom thing that, that I was talking to Tony about it. He says it's basically, I asked for a, a blog. I thought we could all just like basically use that as a forum for interchange. I can suggest um, a, a sort of agenda for the class. And, and Tony says that this is fine. There's, this thing will do all of that stuff. We can chat on it. We can, we can uh, post post content I want to finally get people to do their assignments in that format um, so I will definitely I promise everybody get my head around that thing and and as we proceed hopefully that will become a kind of efficient way of, um, of, of setting an agenda for this thing um, but I would say for next week and uh, in the absence of any fascinating eruptions taking place on that Google Google Teach or whatever it's called thing, um, that we should um, uh, there's stuff people can suggest now, and there's actually working our way through this Satoshi Nakamoto thing. And I think if people if people uh, are kind of reading this and just underlining where they think, starting from the beginning, the, the crucial points of discussion and the problems and the points of interest are in this paper. Um, I think that will provide some kind of framework, framework of order because it does have a structure to it. As you get deeper into it, you will find that there are sections that look a little bit random and maybe only for computer scientists. Like, let me just, I think, starting with, um, um, Section seven. It's only got. It's really short. It's only got a total of twelve sections, including the conclusion. Section seven, reclaiming disk space. I mean, maybe there's a kind of level of nerdy computeriness here, which I would deeply appreciate. That will teach me why this section is one that we can dwell on philosophically for an hour. But as I'm looking at it now, probably that sort of section we can skip over quite fast. But the first few sections of the thing. 
are just drenched, saturated, and absolutely fascinating philosophical depth. And and so I think if we if we aim to look at the first uh, three or perhaps four sections of this paper next week, that would be that would be great. Um, so um, let let me just tell you the, the the structure of that after introduction, which is a fantastic little text. It's just two paragraphs, but it's very very rich. And then um, the the next three sections on transactions, this timestamp thing, which is incredibly short but but extremely interesting. And then the section on proof of work takes you into the kind of nitty gritty of the way that um, Bitcoin works. So so my inclination would be to try and get through that kind of material. I think if we got to the end of section three, we'd probably be doing okay mm. because, as I say, it thins out. Mm. And there's the course description in which you kind of like gave some sort of an idea of like what what you expect people yes. and, like the enrolled students to do. So if people want to take a quick look at the at the syllabus and the course description and ask questions from Yes. That that's got some sort of supplementary readings on and I'll definitely um I'll try I mean we've already sort of wandered off uh maybe we have or maybe we haven't. I don't know whether how closely we've stuck to the first one, but but I will also treat this as a guideline that tries to restrict wild random digression. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. So I will make sure that everyone who's uh, audited, all the members who've shown interest to be in a class, and of course all the fully enrolled students are having access to the classroom, so everybody can participate there. I would normally also copy and paste the sidebar conversation here into the classroom so every link and every conversation here can also be remembered that way. Great. And I'll look through this sidebar which as I say I haven't really been able to focus on so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take all these remarks seriously. Yeah, and, and I'll paste them there in the classroom too so you can you can look at them later there. I just okay. lost a little bit in the beginning because I had I was kicked up, kicked out of the room and then I came back. So the first little part of it I don't have. If somebody has, maybe they can add it to the to the as a comment to my post to the classroom, which will be the rest of the conversation here on the sidebar. Cool. Okay. So thanks everybody for for showing up and, and being so stimulating. I'm sure. I'm sure the ten minutes or so that we're saving here will be used later in some other class. Which you, which oh, you sorry. Am I am I rushing to? I, I, no, no, that's okay. I, that's okay. If there isn't question, we can. T we all, we always do this. We save the time for for another another session where there are conversations and questions. Yes. No. I apologize. I I I thought I was being gently nudged out of the room, rather than um fleeing fleeing the room prematurely. So I I'm in no hurry to. To stop if people have anything for, so, to do. So guys, we basically have about 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes maximum. If you have any questions for Nick 
or we can save this time for later sessions. Up to you. If you have a question, unmute yourself and join the conversation. Yeah, as much uh, as we can. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I had a yeah quick question. Um, just maybe for the uh, next week. Um, is is there any is there any material you'd suggest for um, sort of adequate tools for looking at temporality in in the blockchain that is sort of coming from outside of Nakamoto? Um, actually, I haven't yet come across this because I mean. Um, I'd be very happy to be proved wrong about this. And as I say, I only actually stumbled upon this website that is called Bitcoin and Philosophy Today. Uh, but it's not philosophy in a particularly intense understanding of that word as, as I'm yet seeing. I mean, I've only had a chance to, to, to scratch the surface of it. So I don't think this stuff yet exists. Um, but I would be thrilled to be proved wrong about that. Um, I think we have to do that ourselves um, because I think that the, the whole uh, way that the uh, Nakamoto paper articulates itself is very down-to-earth, it's very understated, it's very technical and, and um, it's trying to just solve this problem in software. Um, so I think we're, we're we're out, out. And, and it's not and doing that for us. My, my, my question is, uh, in regards to this, anybody thinks that Sohail Malik's piece in Collapse 8 is useful, or anything from Collapse 8 could be brought into discussion? Or like as a sort of like precursor text, or because Sohail's piece particularly deals with a kind of temporality that uh, derivatives bring bring with them into the picture. So I thought maybe that's a good respond to Patrick's question. Yes, I mean I think as I, this is going back to what I think maybe was it your first question, Mo? Yes, um, and. It, it, there is there is this constellation of discourses around there, and I, and I think that Eli Ayash is a, is obviously uh, really crucial to that whole discussion. And I think it's going to. I'm not saying it's not worth making that connection, but it's going to be work to make that connection because um, the financial uh, the way that concretely Bitcoin works as a financial instrument is still so unclear to people. Uh, there's no one doing, I mean, okay, we did have Ryan actually saying that he was doing various types of currency trade, cross-currency trading with it, and I'm, I'm hoping we're going to see more about that. But I think everyone would agree it's vastly underdeveloped compared to these extremely hyper-sophisticated financial tools that we're seeing uh, in existing fiat, fiat currency systems um, and so uh, we already know that absolutely fundamental pillars of the existing financial system simply does not translate into Bitcoin um, 
you cannot, you know, you need the very fact that you need 100% currency reserves with Bitcoin to do anything. You know, you cannot, a whole, a whole system of debt-based financial activity is simply impossible. Um, if I owe you Bitcoins, then that is something happening outside the Bitcoin system. As far as the Bitcoin system itself is concerned, either I have the Bitcoins in my account or I've passed them to your account. End of story. So, you know, you can do weird financial manipulation on Bitcoin from outside, but Bitcoin, what Bitcoin itself allows is, is, is extremely obscure at this point. Thank you. I'm 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 sort of like making uh, hypothetical questions, also like sort of like being playing devil's advocate, but but really trying to sort of like see, maybe somebody wants as their part of their project or research take up this work of comparing and contrasting these two different types of temporality that come with uh, derivatives, which are fiat currency based, and Bitcoin, which is sort of like like you said, works in a fundamentally different Ways. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm after having some time to digest. I, I really think that the issues people have brought up in this session are absolutely fantastic. You know, and I think if we could just, hopefully, we will be able to compile them when everything comes together, and we will see. Maybe, you know, I'm not predicting. You know, eight absolutely core fundamental questions that people have brought up here and, and we really need to try and find the time to delve into. Um, so, so I'm looking forward to getting a chance to just do some digestion on that for sure. Rachel, do you want to like, like come in and talk about what you're typing on the side or? Sure, yeah. Um, I was involved with a group you may have heard of called the Robin Hood Asset Management Cooperative. I don't know if people have heard of them. Um, it's uh, it's quite an interesting project, and in they're they're working with cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin, but also crypto equity, um, as sort of a a hack of financialization, so using the tools of financialization basically against itself. So they're developing kind of parasitic algorithms, but they're also they're also looking at different kind of blockchain um, ways of incentivizing people to join um, the asset management cooperative. But I mean, I can't go into all the technical details now. But you know, it's it's quite an interesting structure in a number of different ways because they're basically trying to find a way of using financial instruments, financialization to support um, precarious workers or to support some kind of common fare. Um, but what might be interesting to this discussion as well is that. Um, the, the cooperative, I suppose, is it's made up of activists, but then there's also a lot of kind of philosophical uh, discussion around that. So there's quite interesting discussions in Dublin a couple of months ago when the group were over around this idea of algorithmic governance, for example, um, sure. of the parasitic nature of finance, and then also quite technical discussions of cryptocurrency and crypto equity, um, all of which might might be quite relevant. So I'm just thinking aloud and I was thinking maybe some of the documents, if I can root things out that people have published or I have some kind of notes from that that they might be interesting just to to people. That was all. Thank you. Okay, Nick, I muted you because you were echoing. So if you want to have la the, the final remarks, we can maybe wrap it up. Hello? Um, 
Yeah, my, my only final remark is to just thank everybody, and I hope that there is some sense of uh, direction, however um, complex and, and, and turbulent. Um, and if anyone has uh, online resources of any kind that they think they want to share with people and are relevant and want to bring up in this discussion and encourage people to, to look at, then that would be fantastic. And we have this space uh, that I still need to explore to share this material. Um, so please feel free to, to use that um, and, and you know we can uh, obviously engage in communication beyond the confines of this particular period. So thanks everybody so much for, for this uh, session. Thanks, Nick.